All praises to the Most High Yah. I am Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we say shalom, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. This is a podcast where we will study the Bible, the biblical covenant, and what that means for us today. We hope you not only study the Bible when listening to this podcast, but we encourage you to study the Bible outside of listening to this podcast, because as it states in 2 Timothy 2, Verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should study to know the scriptures for ourselves and not just to listen to just one or a group of people. And the only way we can know the truth from error is through studying and searching the scriptures and letting y'all lead us. So if you're ready, let's begin today's study. Pastor, what will we be taught discussing today? We're going to continue to study further into the sacrificial support. And as we have been dealing with the labor, we want to continue with some more applications of that particular scenario. So let us pray, Eternal Father and our loving Son, as we look to you at this time, we ask that you would grace our presence. That as we go into your word, your word may go into us and make us better students, better teachers, and most of all, have the sanctified life that you would have us to have. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Our first text that we want to use is found in the book of Exodus, and we want to turn into that particular passage in Exodus, the 30th chapter, and we want to read verse number 18. Exodus chapter 30, verse 18 reads, and thou shalt make a labor of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. As we have been studying, we see that the foot of the labor uh, is what holds up the labor, and it was mounted upon this particular foot. Now, we have discussed a number of things about the labor. And as we look at this particular subject, the sacrificial support, what we want to do in this part of our discourse is to identify the brass foot of, of the labor. In our text, the brass foot of the labor is spoken of as the foot also of brass, for the mere reason that the foot of brass is spoken of as his is an indication that the text is putting the foot within the framework of a male gender. What we also understand is that this male foot is made out of brass, which means that it is associated with what brass represents, which is suffering. So what we have thus far from our text concerning the laborer's foot is that it is a male foot of suffering. When we consider this male foot of suffering, we must also take into consideration that this male foot is suffering also contained water and was anointed. 
let us identify the and personify our discovery of these portions of the laver's foot. Let us start this section by asking the question, what is the first mentioning of a male foot in suffering? Okay, so now when we look at the male foot, it represents a suffering foot. And so we want to look at the first time that a suffering foot is mentioned in the Holy Writ. So at this time, we want to turn to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we want to look at the third chapter. And in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, we want to look at verse 15, and it reads thusly, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, when we read this promise, this is one of the first promises that was given to our forefathers and to Adam and Eve concerning the coming of the Messiah. Here in this text, it speaks about the hatred between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The serpent seed's head would be bruised by the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman's heel would be bruised by the seed of the serpent. What we notice in Genesis 3.15 and also in Exodus 3.18 is somewhat of a parallel or a paralleling of text. In other words, when we compare Genesis 3.15 and Exodus 3.18, they parallel. We notice that the former text makes mention of his heel while the latter text makes mention of his foot. <clears throat> however, <clears throat> however, even though these passages speaks respectively about his heel and his foot, yet in many ways are they congruent. Is not the heel a part of the foot, and does not the foot have a heel? So when you talk about the heel and the foot, they are basically talking about the same part of the body. We are told in Genesis 3.15 concerning the heel of the seed of the woman that his heel would be bruised. Thus, bruising has to do with the crucifixion and the suffering of Yeshua. Now, let us see what uh, Isaiah prophesied. Let us go to the book of Isaiah, and in the book of Isaiah, we want to turn to the 53rd chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. And we want to look at a, a verse there in Isaiah 53. And the verse that we want to look at is found in Isaiah 53, and it's verse 5, Isaiah 53, 5. Notice what it says. It said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, what we see here, Isaiah is saying that he would be bruised. Now, when we go all the way back to uh, Genesis 3.15, the Bible talks about the bruising of his heel. So we see that this male foot, and when we look at 
the labor being a foot, and we look at Genesis 3.15, the foot is talking about the male foot of Yeshua, our Messiah. It says, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. Here it speaks about the bruising. Moreover, when Yeshua arose from the grave, one of his evidences, <clears throat> he, he, uh, that was pointed out to his disciples was his feet. Now let us go to uh, the book of Luke, and we're going to see about his feet. Okay, in the book of Luke, we want to turn to chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and in the 24th chapter of Luke, we want to look at verse number 39, okay, Luke chapter 24 and verse 39, okay, and now here when he arose from the grave, uh, what we see is that the foot of the labor that was anointed of brass, which represent the adorned suffering feet of, uh, of Messiah. And we go back to Genesis, one of the first promises that deals with the salvation of the human race. It deals with his feet. That's what it deals with, his feet. And here, when he rose from the grave, notice what it says. It said, behold, my hands and my feet. You see, his hands and his feet that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So again, we are seeing his feet. Now notice what verse 40 says. Verse 40 says, And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. So the evidence of his resurrection was his hands and his feet but we are talking particularly about his feet. Now, let us turn back to uh, the 30th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 30. Now, here in Exodus chapter 30, we want to look uh, at verse 19, in Exodus 30, verse 19. And here it says, And Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet there. So they were to wash their hands and the feet in the part of the labor that was designated for the washing. Okay, now what we're going to be dealing with now is what we call aqua support, aqua support. Now aqua means water. In other words, we're going to look at the support of water, the aqua support. Now as we deal with the sacrificial uh uh, support. Within that, we have a subtopic, which is the aqua support. Here we are told in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, it says, and Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. So here we are told in this text that both Aaron and his sons were to wash both their hands and their feet at the labor so not only their hands must be clean, but also their feet. The labor's foot provided a place for the clean cleansing of the priest's feet. By Aaron being a high priest in type, washing his feet, it would naturally follow that Yeshua being a high priest in the antitypical fulfillment 
would also have his feet washed. So why was this washing of the priest's feet necessary? Was this a washing? Was this washing a ceremonial cleansing? Or was it a literal cleansing with a spiritual application? Now, when we notice in verse 19, what we do know about this, wa this water cleansing is that it was a very serious business of which Aaron, the priest, could not take lightly. For we are told that they shall wash with water that they die not. Now, notice that in verse 19. Well, in verse 20, that is, it says in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 20, it says, uh, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto Yehoah. So in other words, it, it was at the peril of their life if they didn't cleanse their feet as they went about their duties the of the tabernacle assembly and officiated at the altar and to burn offering made by fire unto Yehoah. Moreover, the death sentence was reiterated in verse 21. Notice that he told them that if you are unclean and your feet or your hand, that you will die. And he reiterates the seriousness of this in verse 21. Exodus 30, 21 says, So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generation. So in other words, it was a serious business about them being clean when they officiated in the sanctuary. Moreover, the death sentence was given to them if they did not. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not, and it shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So this was a perpetual cleansing that they had to engage in. It was not a one-time act. It was something that was could go on continuously that they should be clean as they carried out the office of the priest. Consequently, when we consider the aqua washing, it carried with it a death sentence upon the unclean feet of the priests. What we must understand is that not only the priests, but also the sacrifice must be clean. By Yeshua being both our high priest and sacrifice, both his office as a priest and his offering as our sacrifice must be clean. In the time of Yeshua, when the chief priests and the Pharisees had led him into the hall of judgment, they themselves refused to enter into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, when we let us turn to uh, the Gospel of John, 
in the Gospel of John, we want to look at chapter 18 concerning the scenario that I spoke of or why those priests back up then did not want to defile themselves. Now notice what it says here in verse 3. The Gospel of John, verse chapter 18, verse 3, it says, uh, it says in verse 3, Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this was, they were coming and looking for Yeshua. They wanted to take him, okay? This is the background. And, and notice what it says. It says, the chief priests, now these were the chief priests at the time, and the Pharisees, they were the ones that were seeking to get Yeshua. Now, in, now let's read verse 28 of the same chapter, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and we're looking at verse 28. And verse 28 says, Then led they Yeshua from Caiaphas unto the hall of the judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So they knew about this cleansing. They knew about this cleansing, okay? And so they said they didn't want to defile themselves because cleansing was necessary. Now, we can somewhat see from the behavior of the priestly leaders of Yeshua's day, they observed these cleansing rituals, even though the chief priests and the Pharisees may have been ritually clean on the outside, yet on the inside they weren't. Listen to the words of Yeshua, how he describes the condition of those with an outward cleanliness without an inner cleanliness. So let us turn to Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, we want to look at the 23rd chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. And so here in Matthew chapter 23, we want to consider uh, a few verses there. All right, in Matthew chapter 23, we want to look at uh, verses number 25 and 26, okay? Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. Notice what it says. Now, Yeshua, in talking to uh, the Pharisees, uh, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup, and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Now notice he says, Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. For you may clean the outside. Now notice that he says, you may clean the outside. That was good. That was good, he's saying. He said, you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. Then he goes on to say, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Ye blind Pharisees, cleanse first. Notice that. He says, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter that the outside of them may 
be clean also. So in other words, he's talking about two cleansing here. He's talking about an outside cleansing and an inside cleansing. So when we look at the cleansing of the foot of the priest, what we're looking at is two cleansing. We're looking at the cleansing of the outside of the foot, but also the inside of the foot. So let's get to it. From this passage of scripture, we can see that the priest's washing were both ceremonial as well as spiritual washing. Isn't it amazing that Yeshua never opposed the outward righteousness of the Pharisees, but rather he commends them on their outward form of righteousness. He said, that's, that's good. That's good that you can clean the outside. That's, that's all right. I, I accept that. But he says to them that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, that's, that's Matthew's. That's, that was in Matthew's 5.20. In Matthew 5.20, he said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So here we see that Yeshua is accepting, uh, is, uh, accepting the Pharisees' outward cleanliness. However, he says that our righteousness should exceed theirs. In a sense, he is pointing out to us that we should come up to their outward form of cleanliness, but to exceed it, in our case, to exceed their cleanliness, cleanliness would be to not only be clean on the outside, but to also be clean on the inside. The outward cleansing is rather ceremonial, while the inner cleansing is spiritual. Consequently, foot washing can be both a ceremonial practice as well as a spiritual practice. When it comes to the foot washing, in association with the brazing foot of the laver, let us view it from at least two aspects. The first aspect we view it from would be a literal one, which would also be what we refer to as a type. In this literal type, understanding of the brazen foot containing water, there is what we call a foot washing ritual, which accompanies the duties of the priest. When the priest officiated at the brazen altar, of burnt offering, they had to have clean feet. What we want to notice at this juxtaposition is that the labor foot and the altar of burnt offering have something in common. The commonality they share is that they both were articles of furnishings which were constructed out of brass. The labor was made entirely of brass, whereas the altar of burnt offering was made of acacia wood and overlaid with brass. When, when the sacrificial animal was slain, no doubt some blood was spilt on the foot of the priest. Therefore, both the animal sacrifice and the priest had to be cleansed of blood. Now there were at least 
two instances whereby blood needed to be cleansed. We will observe these two cleansing individually. The first cleansing we will refer to as the sacrificial cleansing. Okay, let us turn to the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, we want to look at chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 4. And here we find in Leviticus chapter 4, we want to read a few verses there. Now in Leviticus chapter 4, and we are looking at verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 5 that is. Okay, we're talking about the sacrificial cleansing. Here in Leviticus chapter 4, reading 1 through 5, it says, And Jehoah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If his soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of Jehoah concerning these things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he has sinned a young bullock without blemish unto Jehovah for a sin offering. And he shall bring a bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before Jehovah, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before Jehovah. And the priest that is anointed shall take the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. So here we see uh, in the sacrificial cleansing that they had to bring a, a, a bullock, and that bullock was to be sacrificed, and it was to be sacrificed in the behalf of the priest. So it was the blood that did the cleansing. Okay, so when we consider the sacrificial cleansing, it involved the cleansing of the blood of the sacrificial animal. The slain animal had to be washed clean of the blood it contained. The sacrifices were not only to atone for sin, but they were considered clean beasts of which could be eaten. Of these meat uh, sacrifices, the priests were to eat. Now let us turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 29. In Exodus chapter 29, we want to look at uh, verses 32 and 33. Exodus 29, verses 32 and 33 says, And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to concentrate and to sanctify them, but a stranger shall not eat thereof because they are holy. So in other words, the very sacrifice that they sacrificed, they were also to eat it, okay? They were also so, so, so to eat it. Now let us turn to uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus 11. And in, in Leviticus 11, we want to look at uh, verses... 11, now verses 10 and 12, okay? Exodus, I mean, not Exodus, but Leviticus chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 10 and 12. No, 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 first of all, no, uh, 
yeah, we want the Exodus, we want Leviticus 11. However, we want verses 46 and 47. 46 and 47, that's what we want, okay? All right. Now here in, in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 46 and 47 says, This is the law of the beasts and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and every creature that creepeth upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. So here we see two things. In other words, the beasts that were to be eaten, they were to eat in the sacrificial system and they were to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. So they were to clean the sacrifice and the very sacrifice that they clean had to be un they had to be clean meat because the priests would have to eat it. Okay. Now let us turn to Leviticus chapter seventeen. Leviticus chapter seventeen, and in Leviticus chapter seventeen, now these are the verses uh, ten and twelve that we want to read. Okay. All right. Here in the seventeenth chapter of Leviticus, and we read in verses ten and twelve, it says, and Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. Okay, now verse 12 said, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourn among you eat blood. So in other words, they were to eat the flesh, but not the blood. The blood is what's cleansed them. The blood, even in the human body, is what takes all of the impurities and stuff out of the system of the body. So when we want to be examined by a doctor, the doctor examines the blood, and whatever's in the blood is an indication of what's going on in the body, but the Elohim says they should take the blood and they should not eat the blood. The purpose of the sacrificial cleansing was to purify the animal's flesh of any impurities. It was the blood, the urine, and the excrement that was removed from the flesh so that when the sacrifice was put upon the altar, it was pure. The same flesh that was sacrificed was also the same flesh which would which was eaten by the priest. So the protocol which the priest followed was to kill the sacrifice, cleanse the sacrifice, put the sacrifice on the fire of the altar, and they would eat of the sacrifice from the altar. Now that we have looked at the sacrificial cleansing, let us go to our second cleansing, which is what we call the priestly cleansing. So as we look at the priestly cleansing, we want to turn to Exodus, back to Exodus chapter 30. And in Exodus chapter 30, we want to look at uh, verses 19 and 20. Exodus 30, verses 19 and 20. And it says, For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not, or when they come near 
to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto Yehoah. In this passage of Scripture, we are given the cleansing practices for the priests. We are told that the labor of water was for the priests to wash with, particularly in this passage, does it point out that the priests should wash their hands and feet. Now, generally, when we speak about the priests' hands and feet, respectively, they represent the works and the walk of life. The feet represents the walk, and the hands represented the work. In order for the priests to properly align themselves with the righteousness of Yahuwah, the works of their hands and the walking of their feet must be in harmony with Yah's will. The priests' works must be clean and their walk of life must be clean. Consequently, by the priests washing their hands and their feet, typify both that they were washing away any evil works and evil ways that with clean hands and feet, they would perform works of righteousness and walk in righteousness. The priestly washing of hands and feet in the antitypical sense was to have pure works and a pure walk. The priests were not to engage in any type of vain activity or vain practice. They were only to engage in righteousness or righteous things and such services that lend itself to sanctification. The whole duty of Elohim's priests was to both live and teach a life of sanctification. And this we see in the life of Yeshua, our Messiah, and priest, who was the antitypical fulfillment of the typical priests of Aaron. This sanctification of foot washing was an indication that this living and teaching a life of holiness was being supported by the feet of the priests walking in the way of righteousness. The priests feet were to support the work of sanctification like our feet support our body. When we consider the fact that it was the labor foot would support the labor in this type of antitypical uh, foot of Yeshua supported his life of righteousness and sanctification while on this earth the foot supports at least three specific functions which our Messiah upheld. And when we follow our Messiah, the Yeshua, Yeshua, we will use our feet as he did in carrying out these three functions. And we will consider these three functions the following week. But we realize that it was the feet of the priests in walking in sanctification that was anointed, which was brass feet, which was suffering feet, which were the feet of the Messiah. And as we see that his feet 
walked in righteousness because the Bible admonishes us that we should walk spiritually. We should walk righteously. So when we talk about a foot, it's talking about walking in righteousness. So we conclude this discourse today, but next week we'll look at those functionings of the feet in which we will be dealing with in order to see how these feet walk in the righteous sanctification of our Yahuwah. Father, we thank you that as we look at the sanctified feet of Yeshua, that the power of the Holy Spirit shows us him as our high priest walking in righteousness. And as we walk in his path, that we too can walk in righteousness. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. 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 So, now, doesn't the scripture describe Yahuwah's foot as uh, either bronze or brass burnt in fire? Mm-hmm. We'll probably be covering that next week, but what's your question on that? Oh, no, I just wonder, you know, if mm-hmm. there's some um, ties to that with the brazen laver. Oh, yes. Ooh, it's a, oh, it's a tremendous tie there. And like I said, we'll hit that next week, and uh, we'll be showing the tie-in of that. Okay. Mm-hmm, certainly. Okay, that was a good good question, though. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, some people may have a question with in regarding to the eating of meat and not partaking of the blood. Mm-hmm. In this instance, it was the priests after they sacrificed the sacrifice that they weren't mm-hmm. to partake of the blood. Does mm-hmm. that also translate to people who eat? Um, flesh now that they should not eat meat with the blood in it? Yeah, well, your question raised at least two observations for me, uh, at least two observations. First observation is uh, if they're going to eat meat, uh, it should be clean meat, number one. Uh It should be clean meat. And number two, even if it's clean meat, the blood should not be in it, okay, because the blood... uh, according to the scriptures, is where the life was. And Elohim told Moses when he wrote the Torah that they should not partake of the blood. Now, whether we understand it or not, if he says it, we should do it. But the fact is that there is some understanding that blood does contain the contaminants of the body. And when we eat the blood, we are eating the contaminants of the body. Uh Now, it's ironical that you would ask that question because... Uh, when an individual eat clean meat or even unclean meat with blood in it, they have found out that when you cook meat and you have what we call that good smelling fragrance or uh, and when people said it smells good, they have found out that what makes the meat smells good or what we, when we uh, smell it cooking, they said that is the blood, the urine, and the, and, and the excrement that is in the meat. That's what wow. makes it smell good. If you took all of the blood, the urine, and the excrement out of the meat, meat would be so plain that you wouldn't like it. This is why when they cook meat, they have to doctor it up with different spices. At least the Jews do because they try to have kosher meat, and they try to doctor it up. Okay. So it's the urine and all the excrement and the, and the blood that makes it smell that way, but that is the stuff that we should not eat because it can put, produce a disease within the body. Wow. And, and so tying that into the sacrificial cleansing, 
Um, it involves the cleaning of the blood from the sacrificial animal. Yeah, well, let's look at that also in two ways, okay? When they came and they confessed their sins over the animal, they cut the animal's throat, mm-hmm. and then they cleansed it of his blood, and then once it was cleansed, they could put it on the altar with the, you know, the frankincense and stuff and offer up a sweet offering, okay? Okay, but let's look at look at it from, from this aspect as well, that uh, physically, when you eat blood or have blood, it has the contaminants of the body in the blood, okay? Mm. So this would mean physically that it, it, it's unfit to eat, okay? Okay. But the second thing, we want to look at it spiritually, which we was also trying to define it spiritually, that it was not a, just a ceremonial, but it was a spiritual practice that when they confessed their sins, the sin went on the animal, okay? And when it went on the animal, it went inside the animal, and the righteousness of the animal went into the person. Okay. Okay, now when we fast forward, the animal sacrifice represented Yeshua. So when we confess our sins to him, our sins go on him and his righteousness comes on us. Okay. So that would mean that our, our sins spiritually is in the sacrifice. So if we eat this blood of the sacrifice that our sins went in, see our sins went into the life of, of Yeshua, which would spiritually go into his blood. So that means that all of the impurities in the blood. So if we, would eat the blood, that would mean we'd be eating our sins again. Wow. So we had to put them on, on the sin bearer, and he had to get rid of them, and then he give us a new blood transfusion, which is his blood, and then we have the righteousness of his life. Wow. So we do not want to partake whatsoever of the blood, because basically we will be taking back on our sins that we were trying to get rid of, pretty much. Right. And I, I've heard people say that when you have the Passover, that in order to have the Passover, you have to have a lamb. And and, 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 and and sure enough, they take the blood out of the lamb and they eat the lamb. They said, if you don't have a lamb, that you don't have a Passover. But that mm-hmm. is not true, because when Yeshua was on earth with his disciples, he told them that what's going to represent my body after I've been crucified is the bread. He said, the bread is going to represent my body. So you do not need a lamb in a Passover service, all you need is the bread. He says, because the bread will represent my body. Okay. And we have a question. Were the priests the only ones eating, I guess, the meat of the sacrifice? Yeah, they were the uh, only ones to uh, eat, partake of the meat of the sacrifice. Uh, what it was when the uh, repentant came and they confessed their sin and the priest would take the lamb they they would take it and they would eat it at a certain uh, a place in the sanctuary. Yeah, they they were the only ones that eat the the sacrificial fishel lamb. Okay, but in other services like the Passover, they they could they could partake of the lamb themselves. But in the sanctuary, it was only the priest. Mm-hmm. But due to the fact, if we fast forward to our day, Yeshua has made us all priests. So that means that we all can take part of the lamb or take part of the bread that he's given to represent the lamb or his body. Okay. We have another question uh, from one of our listeners. Uh, Should we not receive a blood transfusion? Should we not receive a blood transfusion? Yes. Okay. Well, when we get into the medical uh, science, uh, when we deal with a blood transfusion, that is a lot different from eating blood, even though uh, Jehovah witnesses has said that, uh, 
even a blood transfusion is considered eating blood, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing about that is where it becomes contradictory is that m- most of the Jehovah Witnesses that I know are not vegetarians, <laughs> they are, and neither are they vegans, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I asked the Jehovah Witness, I said, y- y'all don't eat blood, but yet you say a blood transfusion uh, is eating blood. I uh-huh. said, now, I'm following your practice more so than you. I said, because I don't eat any meat, and therefore, I, don't, I can't eat blood if I don't eat meat. Yeah. Because that's where the blood is. I said, but you say that you don't eat blood, but yet you eat meat, and the meat that you eat is not kosher. And so you're eating blood in the meat, and then when it comes to a blood transfusion, you say that people who get it is eating meat. Now you are literally eating meat, and they are not really eating it. They're getting a blood transfusion because in order to eat, you must have lips, you Mm -hmm. must have tongue and teeth, and you must take it through the digestive organs of the body. But when you get a transfusion, you're not eating meat. You're having blood transferred into your body. Mm-hmm. Now, if you got type O B, if you got type O or type A B or whatever your blood type is, you're not eating it. You are taking from another person the same type of blood that you have to go into the body. Now, it's interesting also that when I met Jehovah Witness as a chaplain in a the hospital, mm-hmm. they told me, okay, now here's the contradiction. They told me that. Eating blood was a form of, uh, in other words, eating blood, transfusion is a way of eating blood. This is what they told me, that Mm. if you get a transfusion, you're eating blood. Mm -hmm. But yet and still, when they go into the hospital, Jehovah Witnesses told me when they go into the hospital, what they do is they they first donate their own blood. They donate their own blood, and then when they need your transfusion, then they take their own blood. Now, if you say it's eating, is not you eating the blood on the transfusion according to what you teach? Yeah. But no, it's nothing wrong with taking a blood transfusion. It's not eating blood. You are having a transfusion to your body. It is not a form of eating. So it's just a form. Because, I mean, they're injecting it in the area. It's not like you said. They're, you're not consuming it through the mouth, which is eating. Mm. Yeah. You know. See, eating uh, uh, it, it, it is a digested uh, process that it comes to the uh, uh, the uh, digestive system. And when you study the digestive system, uh, food is beginning to be broken down into the mouth, and there are certain things that are broken down to the mouth. Then when they go down to the esophagus, then into the stomach, and then to the, uh, I believe it's the large intestines, and then the small intestines, it, it goes through a process. But blood does not go through that process because the digestive system is different from the circulatory system. So when you study the circulatory system, it's altogether different. Mm-hmm. And just like when a person needs air and you have resuscitation, uh-huh. then that's a different system from the circulatory system and the digestive system. That's that's the uh, the uh, when you inhale and exhale, that's your that's your breath mm-hmm. that goes through the lungs. That's a different system in the body. So we cannot equate the two. Okay. All right. I think those were excellent questions asked, and hopefully Mm -hmm. we got a little bit more clarity. Up next is Let's Talk About That. 
Today in the Let's Talk About This segment, I want to talk about Let's Talk About Sex, and I'm not talking about the song by Salt and Pepper, but I want to talk about sex in regards to fornication and the Bible. So if you have your Bibles with me, if you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 through 20. i give you a minute or two to get it. All right. And it reads, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, no adulterers, nor sodomim, nor abusers, of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of Elohim. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of Adonai Yahusha Hamashiach, and by the Ruach of our Elohim. All things are powerful unto me, but all things are not profitable. All things are powerful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any food for the belly and food and belly for the food. But Elohim shall destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for fornication, but for Yahuwah and Yahuwah for the body. And Elohim was has both raised up Adonai and I will also raise up his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Mashiach? Shall I then take the members of Mashiach and make them the members of a harlot? Never. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, says he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto Yahuwah is Yachid. Flee fornication. Every sin that is flee fornication, every sin that a man does is without the body. But he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of Ruach Hokadesh, which is in you, which ye have of Elohim, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify Elohim in your body and in your Ruach, which are Elohim's. Now, it speaks on here that we should not fornication. So, Dad, I want to ask you, could you explain a little bit more when it says that um, our body is not our own, basically, that they belong to Yah and that we shouldn't fornicate because of that? Mm-hmm. Okay, what we, <clears throat> what we have... <clears throat> What we have here is is the fact that he's pointing out the fact that of all of the sins, if you look at the, the Ten Commandments that he gave, mm-hmm. it's all ten of them, there isn't but one commandment uh, of the ten that points out that if we sin, we sin with our body on the inside, okay? Okay. Now, every other, if you look at all the other Ten Commandments, it's it's an outward sin, Okay. So, uh, when you, when he says 
but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit in verse 17 of the sixth uh, chapter of first uh, Corinthians. So in other words, he's saying when you commit fornication, this is the only sin of the 10. Mm-hmm. This is the only one that you actually are sinning on the inside of you. The rest of them are on the outside. Okay. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. All of that's on the outside. Okay, so what he is saying is that when uh, Elohim made Adam, he says that uh, when he made Eve, he said, the two of you shall be one flesh, okay? Okay. So in other words, through the act of fornication, you consummate a marriage, but in fornication, even though you are not really married, but when you commit physical fornication, it has a spiritual implication that your spirit, along with the devilish spirit in the other person that you have committed fornication with, mm-hmm. they come together as one. So wow. if you commit a fornication through the spirit of the devil, then the person that you committed with, y'all become one flesh. And because of the act is an intimate act, Uh then by you becoming one flesh with it, then it makes you become defiled. And Paul talks a lot more about this in in, in chapter 7 about fornication. But the thing is, is that when you become defiled, then you are married to defilement. Just as a husband and a wife, when they get married, they get married to one another. Mm -hmm. And in fornication, you're also merging your life with another person. Now, if it's in fornication, it is wrong, but it contaminates your being. But if it's in marriage, it doesn't contaminate. So what he is trying to say here is basically is that when... You take my spirit, which is put into you, for you are bought with a price. And the price that you have been bought with is to let my spirit rule you. But in fornication, you allow another uh, spirit to rule you. This so, is why he said in verse 19, what know ye not that your body is a temple of Elohim? So if it's a temple and you allow another spirit to come into the temple, you have defiled it. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting because I think it has implications outside of just the physical act that and how you said about the spirits, because as I was kind of reading about fornication, it was talked about in the book, I believe, of Jubilees or Jasher, which is in the Apocrypha. And it spoke that because of fornication is the reason why you had the Nephilim, you had, I guess, the evil angels, uh, uh, messing with the uh, daughters of, I think, men, mm-hmm. I believe, and whatnot, which I guess produce beings that should not have been. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, it goes to the mixing of seeds also. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, it came to me, so if a person is having sexual intercourse with all these different people, you don't know what type of spirits or anything you're laying down with them, mm-hmm. you know, when you do that act and when it's outside of what had, Yah has uh, ex, um, sanctioned, you know, mm-hmm. with it being through marriage. 
You know, because I think, too, you don't know when you're getting in bed with them, how are they spiritually, how are they mentally, as well as physically when you do that act. You know, Mm -hmm. you haven't gotten time and then, you know, with it's not being sanctioned by Yah, um, you know, I think it could be a dangerous thing. And we I think that's a lot why we're here today, because also I believe uh, when I was reading also in uh it was describing, I guess, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's one of the reasons why he had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah was because of all the fornicating that was going on there also. Because mm-hmm. I guess fornication leads to other sexual sins. You know. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, fornication and uh, effeminates and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we'll find that the government is, and the state's, are endorsing more and more uh, adulterous and fornication relationships. Uh-huh. You know, it used to be when we was growing up, they used to have PG yeah. uh, in parental guidance. But now, uh, it, when you look at it today, what we call PG back then would <laughs> would be a lot more acceptable than what we see today, it, even though it wasn't accepted back then. But today, that would look so mild in comparison to what you got today. But fornication is almost a way of life. It's like when you look up the word of uh, 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 fornication, it comes from one of the Greek words they uh-huh. call uh, 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 porneo or porno. Yeah. And that's where we get uh, pornography from, pornography. And a lot of people get caught up on pornography. Matter of fact, they were saying uh, in the government a lot of times when they be on the computers, and they got moments in which they are not doing anything. They say more governors, and I mean, not I wouldn't say necessarily governors, but the statesmen who represent us, they are looking at pornography. In other words, it has become a, a addiction. Uh-huh. So we see not not only pornography or fornication in the act itself, but we find that there are many people who are now entertaining themselves by looking at uh, pornography and we can see that the spirit of the demons uh-huh. is getting into uh, the pornography in- industry and it is captivating the, not only just the bodies, but also the spirit of the mind of the people to want to be able to engage in that as a sport. So when we look at the spirit that is behind fornication, uh-huh. we can go all the way back during, during, during the time of Noah that when you, when you have the Nephilims and the people trying to, uh, lay with the daughters of men. And then what we have is that same spirit today, because the Bible says that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the son of man. Yeah. They had the spirit of demons back there with fornication. So we expect at the end of time that this thing called fornication is going to be great. He says they were married and given in marriage. Mm-hmm. So fornication is going to be one of the signs of the end that when we see the government and the states and when we see it in our entertainment, when we see it in our churches, and when we see people uh, uh, showing their body parts, even in the Christian church when they sing, they are showing their body parts. And even Elohim told them the reason why he didn't make any steps to the sanctuary because he said, I did not want to see your nakedness. But fornification is being insinuated in a lot of the ways that we dress and we reveal our bodies. It is the spirit that is coming from the the one who has fallen from heaven. Wow. Cause you know, it, you know, it's interesting that you said it's one of the sins that every one of them are committed 
on the outside, but this is the only one that's committed on the inside in the mind. And just like, I guess how it reads in Matthew five twenty five. but if I sit, but I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman and lust after her has broken wedlock with her already in his heart. So mm-hmm. I guess it's a mental thing and it's already, you know, if you look upon that woman and you already, you basically done already sin. Am mm-hmm. I correct on that? Yeah, you're correct because you hit the you you hit the uh, causes the causative factor of, of sin. Mm-hmm. See, when 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 Eve listened to the serpent, there was one thing to listen to the serpent, mm-hmm. but when she acted on the serpent word, then it entered into her being, and when it entered into her being, then she became contaminated. Mm-hmm. So when Yeshua says, "Whosoever looketh upon the woman to lust after her has already committed adultery." Okay, so when she conceived of this in her mind, she had already committed adultery with the serpent. Mm. And this mm. is why Job said, if you read the story of Job said, Job said, I made an eye covenant with Elohim that I would not look upon my maid. In other words, he said, these eyes won't be looking with adulterous or, for, or eyes of fornication. He said, they won't do that. And so Yeshua said that if you do, then you have already committed. So Job made a covenant, and we have to make a covenant not only with our eyes that we won't look at adultery or fornication, but we have, we have to make a covenant with our ears that we won't even listen to it either. If order to be sanctified and holy, all of our senses have to be sanctified and holy because mm. the devil uses our senses to get to us, but Elohim comes to us through his spirit. Wow. Now, is there a difference between fornication and adultery? Because when I look into the word of fornication, it seems like it also included adultery as well as other sexual sins. So is fornication a broad range of sexual sins or is it a specific act of having sexual intercourse before you are married? Okay, when I looked up the word fornication, there's a number of words for fornication. And in the Hebrew, one of the words for uh uh, fornication is tazuth, T-A-Z-N-U-T-H, tazuth, and it means whoredom. Okay. And then when I looked up the word fornication uh, in the Greek, it was pornea, and pornea also means whoredom. So when you deal with fornication and adultery, uh, in some ways they are interchangeable. Okay, so when you have adultery, uh, what adultery is, is to take something pure and and, and mix it with something that is not of the same nature. Okay. Okay. Like, like uh, let me explain it this way. Over in some countries, they say if you got olive oil, you cannot mix it with any other oil. If you do, you have adulterated. Mm-hmm. If you take olive oil and put corn oil in it, they say it's adulterated. In the United States, you may be permitted to take olive oil and put another oil, you know, uh, to be an accessory, mm-hmm. and it's not considered against the law. But it's still adulterated because you got two mixtures there. So when you deal with adultery, you are mixing two together. You are saying that here you are married and you got a wife and then you have an affair on the outside. That's adultery. Be it a man or the woman, that is still adultery. Okay. All right. Now, fornication is like a whore, a whoredom. Now, what is a whore? A whore she could, uh, a whore could be a, a married or unmarried person. Okay. Okay. Now, if, if, if a woman is a whore, she could be married and give herself to somebody else, or she could be un- unmarried and she can lay around with many men 
that's a whore. Okay, uh -huh. this is why in the book of Revelation it calls uh, uh, the the false church. It calls her a whore because she can lay around with every particular religion that she wants to, but the true religion only unites with one man, which is Yeshua. So when we talk about fornication, we're talking about a person who is living a whorish life. They lay around with anybody. And this is what ancient Israel spiritual sin was. And when you read about it in the book of Hosea, he is saying that my people have played the whore. Okay. Wow. They have been laid around with many different religions, but oh. in the literal sense, it means a woman who is laying around with a number of individuals, either with her husband or without a husband. Wow. Okay. That's, that's something really, you know, I, I don't think a lot of us really think about when we get into relationships, especially these days. And it's just like you said, um, in regarding to uh, film and TV, uh, I remember, I think, in in like a lot of the 70s and 80s and 90s films and whatnot, you used to see a lot of sexual acts. I think now, uh, you know, it doesn't seem as prevalent, but they, they're pushing the narrative now of more homosexual relationships, which next week we'll get into that a little bit more in mm -hmm. on what the Bible speaks on in regards to homosexual relationships, you know. But it just seems like one sin will lead you down a path to another, to another, to another, mm -hmm. and all. Yeah, well, that's that's true, and because even righteousness, if you if you start doing that, it's going to lead you to more righteousness. And the same principle with unrighteousness: if you decide doing one thing, you're going to be led to another and another and another. Until mm -hmm. when you look down, you're going to find yourself bogged down in a sinful life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, it just like the scripture said, if, you know, if your eye is going to cause you to sin, it's better that you pluck it out. And I think mm -hmm. when we see a woman or a man who looks desirable, you know, if you feel you're going to sin, it's better way to turn away or pluck that eye out so you won't sin and whatnot. And I'm not saying literally and everything, but yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, the Bible gives us uh, a, a lot of ways in order we can come back uh, against that. Mm -hmm. In other words, what the Bible tells us to do, it enables us to do it, and it can spell out how we can go about uh, dealing with adulterous relationship. Because Paul even, Paul even addresses this. He said, if a man burns, let him get a wife. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, 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 if you know that you cannot abstain, get your wife. Don't, yeah. don't just get out of lay around in fortification. Yeah. Elohim has given us marriage. Matter of fact, marriage is what defined the covenant that we have with him. So he's yeah. saying that if I tell you to do something, I got a way for you to deal with it. True. And, and you know, it's interesting. The more I read, the more I study is that the principles that Yah have set forth, it sounds like he set forth the same principles for himself and way he deals with us. You know, with mm -hmm. with marriage, you know, how actually Yasharel went whoring, like you said, after other nations. And that's why we're in the state we're in now, you mm -hmm. uh, because of that, you that's know. That's true. But it, it's just interesting how loving he is that some of us he's going to allow to come back after all we have done in going whoring after other nations. 
Yeah, well, that's according to his mercy and his grace. He's saying after everything that you've done, I could divorce you. He said, mm-hmm. I could get rid of you. Mm-hmm. He said, I could have you stoned. Uh, I could have you condemned for what you did. But he said, I love you so much that I'm willing to take a adulterous person who have broken a relationship with me. I'm willing to take you back. And not only am I willing to take you back, but I've sent my son to die for you in order to get you back. Wow. That is true. Undul- unadulterated, pure love mm-hmm. from our creator. So, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer? Okay. Our loving Father, again, we thank you, Lord, that we can discuss your word and to make it relevant to our time and our day. And we even know we realize the world is going astray from the things that you have given us. You still have your remnant people, Lord, Heavenly Father. And the reason why they are so valuable to you is because they are rare. And because you have a few, O Heavenly Father, it doesn't mean that because the many are going in the way of of destruction, that they're going to overrule, O Heavenly Father, the few. But we realize that we may have more silver than we have gold, but gold is most precious. We may have more tin than we have silver, but silver is more precious. So you have talked about the few. You said there are very few that find the way of life, but there are many that find the way of death. So we ask that we may be a part of the few, that precious. The precious few, O Heavenly Father, who will be saved in the eternal kingdom. And we realize, O Heavenly Father, that as we continue through life, there are fortifications that we commit in the way of what we see and what we do and how we go about life. And so we ask that as we come to the cross, we may exchange our eyes for the eyes of Yeshua and we exchange our ears for the ears of Yeshua. And most of all, we may change our hearts for the heart of Yeshua, because he said, let this man be in us that was in Yeshua, the Messiah. And as we take his man, we'll think like he think. We'll see as he saw. We'll hear as he, have, as he hears. And when we do this, oh, Heavenly Father, then the practice of fornication and adultery will not overtake us, but we will overtake it because we can find power in the blood and the life of Yeshua who gives us victory over these sins. Now, Father, as we go into a new week, and as we continue to walk in the way that you would have us to, we ask that you would rebuke the sicknesses that we have and that you would rebuke those old sins that we have a tendency to do, that the power of the Holy Spirit, O Heavenly Father, may help us to not only be in good health, O Heavenly Father, but to be in good spiritual health, that when you do come, you'll have a healthy body of those who have followed the Messiah, and we can be the ones, O Heavenly Father, that you can take with you because we are followed in the way that you have laid out. And when you have done for us that which we ask, we'll give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings. Pray this prayer in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Hallelujah. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. But the mercy of Yahuwah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children's children, to such as guard his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Until next week, Shalom.